Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, as we read verses 22 to 32. Hear now the word of God. Then a demon-oppressed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Oh God, your word is simple enough for a child to hear and to treasure. And it is deep enough to overwhelm the world's greatest minds. Would you feed both alike here today? Whatever our disposition, whatever our need may be, would you, Lord, with simplicity, minister to each heart that hears this message. Help me to be faithful in interpreting your word. Help your people to be faithful in hearing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Have you heard of the term false flag? Um, Maybe you've heard the term, maybe you don't know where it comes from. Generally speaking, the term is used for when a group or a nation in some way attacks itself, either on purpose or by accident, and then disguises the attack as if it was coming from the enemy. The, The term actually came from naval warfare in the 1600s, where ships would disguise themselves with a neutral or an enemy flag to misrepresent their loyalty. A classic example of the false flag attack, at least according to many historians, and I'm at their mercy since I wasn't there, uh, would be something like the Reichstag fire of 1933. The Reichstag fire, uh, four weeks after Hitler was sworn in, the Reichstag, which is the home of the German parliament, was set on fire. Uh, At the time, it was blamed on on communists, but many historians believe the Germans did it themselves as a way of suspending civil liberties and hardening Hitler's grip on the country. Uh, William uh, Schreier put it in, in his book on the subject this way. 
He said there is enough evidence to establish beyond a reasonable doubt that it was the Nazis who planned the arson and carried it out for their own political ends. Maybe a little more ancient would be an example of the Emperor Nero. If you remember the Emperor Nero, uh, there was a fire in Rome, and the fire was blamed on Christians. And there, of course, was Christian persecution, which took place. A lot of historians say that he actually did this for the purposes of hardening his own grip on Rome. Um, you know, isn't it interesting in history, we do have these examples of nations that attack themselves for what they perceive to be their own benefit. Well, the Pharisees in today's passage make this accusation. Now, of course, we, they don't have the term false flag yet in their vocabularies, but they do make the accusation that Jesus, in casting out demons, is actually using the power of Satan to attack Satan. Uh, false flags themselves may be useful on the one hand, but also the claim of the false flag is also useful because what is the claim of the false flag? It is a way of say, saying that this thing that you think you are seeing is not really happening. It's a way of suggesting that maybe something else is really going on. And so in that sense, even the claim of the false flag has a strength of its own that the Pharisees are utilizing here. It allows the accuser to avoid the weight of the obvious event or to dismiss what seems to be taking place. And that's what happens here, right? The Pharisees see this amazing thing. The crowds have seen this amazing thing. And instead of facing the implications of it, they evade. And so they say, it's a false flag. Why do they do that? They do that because what happens here is amazing. It testifies to Jesus' power. It testifies to Jesus' love. It testifies to Jesus' care for these people who are hurting. And especially it testifies to the Spirit's endorsement of the life and ministry of Jesus. They can't have that. And so let's explore this just for a minute. What did they see? What were they denying? What were they twisting away from? And so let's look at it with three points. First, the soothing. Second, the stubbornness. And then third, the strong man. Let me get this out of the way right away. The very first point is called the soothing. I only did this because I was desperate to alliterate. That's the only reason. It really should be the healing, but um, no thesaurus would ever come to my aid. And so I was stuck with the soothing. So... <laughs> Um, sometimes you let the alliteration wag the dog, and it's sometimes a mistake. But here you go. It's the first point's the soothing. It's the healing. Um, in verse 22 and 23, Jesus heals the man who's blind and, and mute so that he can see, and so that he can speak, and so that he can see again. Now, the Pharisees have a prepared response. Their response to this miracle is they say, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons I find it so fascinating that their, their plan is not to deny that this happened. Their plan is not to deny that this took place. Uh, clearly, they think that that line of argumentation won't work. Too many people have seen it. Too many people believe it. Uh, there's no way to convince everybody that they're just crazy collectively. And so their solution is to say, you don't really know what's going on here. They say, yes, Jesus healed this man but you don't know how he did it. He did it by the power of Satan. 
They're desperate for the crowds not to listen to Jesus. They're in full denial that Jesus is from God. And Jesus responds. Jesus responds by by making an argument, which, which we will get to in the next point. But I want to fixate on the source of Jesus' power to do these miracles. Because Jesus denies that he casts out demons, of course, by the power of Satan. He denies that. And according to verse 28, he offers the alternative answer. So he says, it is actually by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. Um, He states it like a hypothetical. He states it it as as an if-then statement, right? But he actually believes it. And so this is his claim. Jesus attributes the miraculous works to this. The Spirit of God is doing these miracles through him. Now, I want to address what Jesus says here. Because I think think for many Christians, this is a puzzling thing for Jesus to say. He says that he does the miracles by the Spirit of God. And I've perhaps talked about this before. Um, many of us, and I, and I claim guilt here when, you know, I, this is me holding my hand up and saying, I am guilty of thinking this, for a very long time assumed that the way Jesus did miracles was because he is God. He has a human nature. He has a divine nature. And so, of course, we think he does the miracles with the power of God, which is his by right. Because he is God, of course, he could do miracles. There doesn't seem to be very much uh, necessary to explain there. But that's not how Jesus says he does these miracles. That's not how Jesus says it. Um, look before. If, if you have your Bibles, I didn't print it today. But if you have your Bibles and you look a few verses before, I will read it so you don't have to get it out if you don't want to. A few verses before, in verse 18, Matthew quotes from the book of Isaiah, and he, he says, this is a passage about Jesus. And one of, the, one of the phrases in Isaiah's passage, which Matthew tells us Jesus fulfills, is this. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So you see this language of the Spirit being upon the Son. And I, and I think, you know, we, we moved past it quickly. Last week, I didn't dwell on it, did I? Right? We, we moved quickly past the verse. But God says that he put his Spirit upon Jesus. And what this does is it actually lines up with what we saw in Jesus' baptism where we see the Spirit descend upon Jesus in the form of a dove. We know the Spirit was upon him. Uh, John 3.34 tells us that we should listen to and receive the words of Jesus. Why? Because God gave him the Spirit without measure, is what John tells us. In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, Peter confesses that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, and with power. We know from Scripture Christ had the Spirit, and we know from Scripture that He was empowered by the Spirit, but we still are left with a little bit of a question, and if you haven't thought about this very much, maybe you're wondering the same thing. Why did the Spirit come upon Jesus and empower Him for His life of ministry and service if He was already God? 
This is where I think many of us are puzzled, right? We think, as God, can't Jesus already cast out demons by recourse to his divine nature? What role could the Spirit possibly need to play in Jesus' ministry? And on the one hand, we need to say, yes, technically speaking, Jesus could cast out demons by his divine power directly through the divine nature, which is rightly his. There's nothing to stop him except for the fact that if he did, he couldn't be our savior. Here's the issue. In the incarnation, the son chose to come not exercising those divine prerogatives that he has as God. Philippians tells us that he intentionally set aside his rights and his privileges, and he lived as a weak and limited man. He really lived and walked among us as one of us. Years later, uh, at the Council of of Chalcedon, the, the, the church assembled, and they were able to sort of further develop some of these understandings of what Scripture uh, says and, and brings them together. And one of the things they say is, Jesus has two natures, but they are not confused or mixed. They remain distinct. They don't mix together. Because if Jesus had exercised his rights as God in his ministry, he would have lived not as us human beings, but as a third type of being who would be God and certainly not, though, a man like one of us. And so what do the Gospels tell us? They tell us and they affirm repeatedly that Jesus ministered by the power of the Holy Spirit without making recourse to his divine nature. Instead, he lived and ministered in humility by the power of the Holy Spirit. He lived and ministered as a man empowered by the Spirit. Um, the Puritan theologian John Owen, he, he explains it like this. He says, Christ's human nature remained completely human, yet the Spirit filled him with light and wisdom to the utmost capacity as a creature. But it was so, not by being changed into a divine nature or essence, but by the communication of the Spirit unto it without measure. That's how Owen explains it. Now, um, I'll translate this into English for you. Uh, Jesus, though God, ministered as a man by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, So you could see, though, the bigger picture of what's being said here when Jesus says... It is by the Spirit of God that I cast out these these demons. He means it. He means it. It's by the Spirit that he's able to do this. These miracles are a testimony that the Holy Spirit is with Jesus in his ministry. And by extension, God is giving him total divine approval of Jesus' person and ministry and testimony. And this is what the Pharisees see, and it is what they fear most. See, here's the problem. The Pharisees are willfully suppressing the truth within themselves. And what this means is that Jesus comes out with these incredibly stern words for the Pharisees because what they ought to be doing is this. They ought to be acknowledging the Spirit's presence. They ought to be acknowledging the Spirit's ministry. The Spirit is bringing sight to this man. The Spirit is bringing speech to this man. He is opening a mouth that was closed before. The Pharisees should see that there are clear beneficiaries and there are clear losers in the work that Jesus is doing. 
humble and hurting people are helped. And guess who is hurt by the ministry of Jesus? Demons are left fleeing and scrambling. Satan's work is being overturned constantly by Jesus. They should see that good is triumphing here and pain and sickness and oppression are being thrown down. They should see that. It's obvious who is victorious and who is losing when Jesus ministers. It is such a dangerous thing that the Pharisees are unwilling to acknowledge that. And in fact, that they would give the exact opposite narrative. Which takes us right to the second point this morning. We see the stubbornness. Um, We could go to the next... We actually could go to the very next verse, but instead I want to jump ahead. I want us to jump ahead to verse 31. Um, Before we see Jesus' answer, I want to go to verses 31 and 32, where Jesus makes a a further comment on the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees. Sort of in a sense, what I want to do is I want to interpret as we go. I want to interpret the hardness of the Pharisees before we see Jesus' answer. The Pharisees would actually say that something like this, that that they would attribute the work of God to Satan. And Jesus sees something in their answer that is so fearful that he must give them this warning. He says, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This warning from Jesus here is is a warning that frightens many Christians. It's It's a warning that sits heavily upon many Christians because they see these words and they're so stark and they're so frank that the notion of any sin that won't be forgiven terrifies them and Jesus speaks of this sin against the Holy Spirit he says that will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come and I think so many Christians they have this fear they have this lingering fear that perhaps they have done this perhaps they have either wittingly or or unwittingly committed the sin against the Holy Spirit which Jesus says will not be forgiven Let me begin just from a a pastoral perspective, and let me do it very directly. I'll just say exactly what I think here. The person who is concerned that he or she has committed this unforgivable sin has not. What do I mean? What I mean is this. The very nature of this unforgivable sin Jesus speaks of is that it comes from a heart of willful indifference. Every Christian I have ever known who fears that this is them is someone who struggles, however weakly they might do it, or pathetically they might engage in battle, but they are somebody who struggles against sin in their own lives. These are the kind of people who have have known their fair share of defeats. They yearn to be more like Jesus, but they also feel like they are seeing more failure than success in their life, and it's discouraging. But think about this. The person who is discouraged by sin in their life is not a person who loves sin. It is somebody who is showing in their own heart attitude 
a hatred of the very thing within them. The sort of hatred of sin that Paul shows in Romans chapter 7 where he says, the very thing I love, I hate. The very thing I hate, I do. He's showing that his heart is divided. Why? Because he is a man who has sin in his life and he loves Jesus. And he feels that tension within himself. Typically, the person who fears they have committed the unforgivable sin has a, has a troubled conscience. They have a sharp sense of their own sin. They, they see that each of their sins is a sign that they maybe don't really love the Lord Jesus in the way that they should. And we should see our sin that way. But because of that, they can't shake the fear that maybe they really aren't a believer at all. Or that they've committed some sin that even though they want to be reconciled to God, they think they've done something to lock themselves out of the kingdom of God. And they think this forgiveness can never be mine. They think, I've crossed the line. I've done too much. I've sinned too much. I've, I've grieved God too much. Now, why would I say then that the person who's afraid they've committed the unforgivable sin hasn't? Right? It's such a definitive thing to say. How can I be so sure We'll look at the passage a little closer. Jesus is, by the way, this is not a verse that just comes out of nowhere. This is a verse that is, that is meant to be read in the context of what's taking place here. Jesus is, is giving this warning in a specific context to a specific people who have said something very specific about the Holy Spirit and his work. See, Jesus' lesson in the last two verses is a, is a warning against the Pharisees who are so they are so hard-hearted that they will even attribute to Satan what has clearly been done by the Holy Spirit. They are hardened to the point that they will call good evil and evil good. We're, we're talking about a heart that is so hard that it will not see anything good in Jesus and if you can't see good in Jesus, you are absolutely blind. R.T. France has a commentary on Matthew probably this big. Um, it's a monster. It's wonderful. Um, R.T. France, talking about this passage, says this. He says, what the Pharisees say here is a complete perversion of religious values revealing a decisive choice on the wrong side of the battle between good and evil, between God and Satan. That is what Jesus is warning against. He's warning against the person who cannot see good even in the work of God. The person who doesn't see hope in Christ. The person whose heart is hardened to that point. Now, because of the warning that Jesus gives... You might think to yourself, well, Jesus is saying that the Pharisees have committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. Maybe you think that. Maybe you think that this is a, a passage of judgment. And yet, I don't think Jesus believes that. I don't think he believes the Pharisees have necessarily committed that sin. Because what does he do? He warns them. Right? He warns them. You don't warn a dead man that there's danger ahead. Right? Um, there's no point in looking at a corpse and saying, hey, look out for that anvil that just fell on your head, right? Instead, you see the danger and you warn the person, right? Warnings are for people who, who are still capable of heeding them. 
Think about the Pharisees, right? We think of the Pharisees as these unsavable bunch of just grumps, right? But we know lots of examples of Pharisees from Scripture, Pharisees and religious leaders who had previously opposed Jesus and later they came to him. Right? So, so what, he's, what he's doing is not pronouncing them unforgiven. He is warning them that there is danger in repeatedly resisting him. He's not making a declaration about them. He's giving them a warning about the path that they're on. So when Jesus speaks of the blasphemy against the Spirit, he isn't saying that opposing God or blaspheming God can't be forgiven. He is talking specifically about the heart that is so hard that it will not turn, it will not repent, it will not see God as good, it will not see Jesus as Savior. And the unforgiveness he talks about is a persistent lifelong attitude of resistance that never turns and never repents, that is what Jesus is speaking of here. Christian, if you're concerned about this, please know that a person who has blasphemed the Spirit is absolutely unconcerned about this. Your concern and your worry, your care about this subject, your fear is evidence that this is not you that Jesus is speaking about. Second of all, if you are concerned about this, I want to invite you to meditate upon the sort of sins that Jesus says are forgiven in Scripture. Look in this passage. Look at verse 32. Jesus says that even people who speak against his earthly ministry can still be forgiven. Peter later denies that he even knows Jesus, and he gets restored. Paul opposes Jesus and persecutes Jesus' people to the point that when Jesus confronts Paul, what does he say? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? He doesn't just say, hey, you're persecuting those people over there. They don't deserve that. Stop it. God says, you have been attacking me directly, Paul. Now I'm going to save you, right? He, Paul actually says in, in Acts 26, he tried to make Christians blaspheme, and even Paul gets forgiven, and even Paul gets restored. Um, think about 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, Paul says that Hymenaeus and Alexander were handed over to Satan. Why were they handed over to Satan? That they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul believes these men who blasphemed and spoke against the Lord and were excommunicated from the church could even be restored. The sort of things that you are afraid that you have done, which you are afraid will shut you out of the kingdom of God. And what do we see over and over and over in Scripture? The person who comes to the Lord for forgiveness finds it in Christ. This is what I want you to see. I want you to see this, that whatever, whatever you are afraid of, that you have seen within yourself, whatever you are afraid of that you've seen within your own heart, whatever it is that you, you see in your own past that you are ashamed of, that whatever, and I do mean whatever, you have done that you think makes you unworthy, I can tell you one thing, in Jesus Christ there is enough grace to meet your sin and replace it with his righteousness. And he will take your filth upon himself and wash you and cleanse you and give you his perfect, beautiful robe. 
And then I know that you, if, you're, if you're really thinking about what you've done, you, you think you just don't know how bad it is, you don't know how bad it was, you don't know how deep it went. You think, I'm not worthy of that, and that is the point. That is the point, because if you were worthy, then Christ would never have come. If you were worthy, then God would call upon you to summon your greatness. And instead, he says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. He doesn't deny the sin. He deals with it. So just let that soak into you right now, Christian. Yes, Forgiveness of sin is scandalous to the world. I used to say, I I thought the world loved the idea of forgiveness of sins. Uh, I used to say that that was the thing about Christianity that the world likes. But I would say in the last five years, the world has taken a puritanical turn. And now the world loves justice and hates forgiveness. The idea of a person being forgiven causes people to recoil. People today, they say, "If if if forgiveness happens then it means the thing that person did, they got away with it. And the world doesn't want anybody to get away with anything. People want justice to be done. The world hates forgiveness because it means somebody got away with it. And so we live in this puritanical cultural moment where every absent word, every, every buried tweet, everything you've ever done can become unburied and met with no mercy No matter if the person apologizes, no matter if the person changes their ways, no matter if the person says they're sorry. So the, the idea of forgiveness is deeply scandalous to the world again. I remember as a kid uh, being told that famous serial killers had converted on their deathbed. Um, Thinking of two specifically. And... And I remember thinking, well, that can't be right. You know, I was, I was a Christian teenager. Gospel hadn't really captured me yet. I just remember thinking, well, that's not possible. Right? Jeffrey Dahmer in heaven? I don't know. Ted Bundy in heaven? Is that possible? I, no. There's something instinctively wrong about that. And, and I think that I had this, this instinctive idea that it could not possibly be. And the reality is, I just hadn't reckoned with the sort of sins that Jesus talks about when he says every sin will be forgiven people. By the way, that is the gospel, right? Once you, once you see the darkness of your own heart, you will stop thinking it's possible for you to be forgiven. But, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer or whoever could never have forgiveness. Part of the gospel is us seeing the darkness of our own hearts and saying, I'm in the same group. I'm in the same group with them. This is outrageous that I could be forgiven my pride or stealing or whatever I've done, right? Even our own hearts live with a form of of denial. Yes, Christians believe in forgiveness. Often, though, it's only to a point. And deep down, many of us may think that the reality of forgiveness can't possibly be true. It has to stop somewhere. There is a line. There's a limit. There's a limit beyond which forgiveness isn't anybody's. And yet those were Jesus' words, not mine. He's the one who said every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. I don't know what to say except behold the grace of God. Run to Jesus and you will find 
every sin and every blasphemy of your own heart washed away and your heart made white as snow. That's, that's what Jesus is inviting every person listening to him to hear. Jesus is handing the gospel over to the Pharisees right now if they'll listen to it. What about you? Will you receive this? I'm not just asking you if you're, a, if you're not a Christian and you've not come to Christ yet. This is how deep God's grace runs. Yes, it's scandalous, but you need it. You need it to be this scandalous. But if you're a Christian, I would encourage you, go to Jesus with your sin. You need to keep it up because the sin continues in this life. And we need to keep going to the Lord Jesus. Now, there's one further point here in in what Jesus is, is engaging with the Pharisees on. And it's in verses 24 to 30. We need to make sure not to get lost in the whole discussion so much that we actually miss the conversation and we miss the debate. Uh, Look what happens. Jesus responds to the claims of the Pharisees and he responds forcefully. But notice that he doesn't bulldoze them. He, He uses persuasive arguments here. He uses reason. He uses care. When John Chrysostom was preaching on this back in the 4th century, he He pointed out to the congregation that in this moment, Jesus is very straightforward and and he's gentle and he gives them warnings, but but Chrysostom says he doesn't savage them. And the point Chrysostom made was that Jesus was so wise and so knowledgeable. Is there anybody who could have laid ways to the Pharisees here like Jesus? Like, if you were thinking of the ultimate debate opponent that you don't want to run into, you know, you want somebody who has, who is absolutely morally perfect on every level, would be a a bad opponent. Somebody who has great memory of the scriptures and has committed massive portions, maybe all of them, to memory. Um, This is the kind of person that could rip you to shreds and humiliate you in public debate. And Jesus absolutely had the power to do that. No one could have done it as effectively as Jesus. And the point Chrysostom makes is that Jesus makes the argument to win them over, not to win the argument. He's seeking to win them over. Why? I said it before. He sees hope in them. He sees that the opportunity, the the day of forgiveness is still here. And, And... and Chrysostom says that we should be the same. He says that we should similarly be gracious to people and we should seek to win the person over, not just humiliate them, not just to own them, even though we have the knowledge and the ability to do it. And maybe we're just mad enough to try. Now, I won't run through all of Jesus' argument, but I want you to notice the flow of it. He, he deploys something that in logic is called a reductio ad absurdum argument in verse 26. And what that is, it's an argument that could be reduced to the absurd. So he's showing them the absurdity of a kingdom defeating its own people in battle. Right? Uh, maybe you don't know Latin, but you know that shooting your own people doesn't make any sense. Right? That's not how you win a war. And, and Jesus says, that's ridiculous. At this point, gentlemen, you are grasping at straws. You are trying so hard to win an argument by saying crazy things. And then he he argues in verse 27 that that this claim of theirs creates a dilemma for themselves. 
See, the Pharisees and their, their disciples also practiced some form of exorcism. And so on one level, Jesus is, in his exorcism, is doing something that is not unusual to rabbis of his time. If Satan is out there defeating his own demons, doesn't that cast just as much doubt on the Pharisees as it does on Jesus? See, their argument's a double-edged sword. It cuts Jesus, they love that, and it cuts them too. It, it proves too much. They discredit themselves with this argument. I'm going to really focus though on verse 28. Because it's, it's really the central conclusion to what Jesus is saying here. Look what Jesus says. He says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And we know that this is, a, this is what you call a conditional statement, right? It's an if statement. We know that the condition of the if-then statement is actually true. He really does do this by the Spirit of God. And that means the kingdom of God really has come upon them. He's telling them the truth. Jesus is saying that there is something real and present and decisive that has taken place in this world with his coming and with this spiritual conquest. Um, You can't undo it. You can't get the toothpaste back in the tube. Uh, Look how he says it. He says, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? So the the assertion here is that Satan is not at work here. God is at work. Uh, Jesus has come. He's begun raiding the house of the strong man in this story. The strong man is Satan. He's, He's stealing Satan's stuff. He's raiding Satan's house and... That, the reason he is able to do it is because Satan has now, in some sense that applies to the situation, Satan has been bound. Jesus is plundering the house of Satan. He's plundering the world. What is he doing? He's casting the demons from their strongholds. He's bringing life where there was death before. He is changing hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. He is making people who once walked in darkness see a great light. The strong man has been bound. In the the Gospel of John, three different times, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Three times he calls him that in the Gospel of John. And in this passage, Jesus says the strong man is bound. How do we think about this binding then? How can someone be bound and be the ruler of this world? You know, I think for many of us, the thought that Satan is bound doesn't seem to line up with what we see around us, right? We, we look around ourselves and we go, have you, have you been downtown, right? Have you, have, you, have you looked around? Do you watch the news? Well, no, you shouldn't watch the news. But, right, we, we wonder to ourselves, right, if Satan is bound by Jesus, then he shouldn't be able to do anything. Why is there still sin? Why is there still suffering if Satan's bound? You know, we sort of instinctively think that if Satan is bound then that's, that's it, right? We should be in the new heavens and the new earth if Satan's bound. But is that what the Bible says about Satan's binding? I, you know, one way to work, work through this is to think like this. Maybe Satan was the ruler of this world, but maybe that was before the coming of Jesus. And now that the death and the resurrection of Jesus have happened, maybe Satan's no longer the ruler of this world. And yet that proposed solution doesn't really account for the rest of the New Testament. 
Paul calls Satan the god of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. And there Paul clarifies what it means for Satan to function as the god of this world. He says he blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them see, from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So this is really helpful, actually. Because it means that being God of this world doesn't mean Satan controls natural events. It doesn't mean that he's sovereign over everything that takes place. But Paul says that him being God of this world means that he influences the hearts of people and blinds people and and darkens their hearts so they don't receive and they don't believe and love God and his gospel. And that's what Paul is saying. And the thing I want to point out is that Paul is saying this after the resurrection. Right? So these are, these are still things that Satan is engaged in even after the resurrection. So it's not enough to say, well, Satan was the ruler of this world, but not anymore. Right? According to Paul, Satan is still called the ruler of this world. But we can at least discern what it means for him to be ruler of this world. He influences hearts. He deceives people. He darkens people to the truth. He rules over what we, we would today call worldly things, worldly matters. The indication of Scripture then is, is not that Satan's activity has been fully stopped. Instead, the indication of Scripture is that even as Satan rules in this limited sense, Jesus is able, as he pleases, to enter the house and plunder whatever he wants. Jesus Christ, by means of the work of the Spirit, has bound the strong man. Jesus, as it were, walks right past Satan and does as he pleases, the way a conquering king raids the lands of his enemies without consequence. Satan is bound. He isn't dead. He is beaten. And the conquest of his lands is underway. And so every day, Jesus is raiding the house of the devil. Um, Every believer in this room is a testimony that Jesus is raiding the strong man's house. Even today, the strong man is bound. Christ is conquering one heart at a time. I think think that's what the book of Revelation is talking about when it, it speaks of the angel descending from heaven and seizing Satan. And it says it bound him for a thousand years. In that passage, John is describing this binding. It's almost parallel to what Paul says the God of this world does. What does the God of this world do? He blinds people. He, he darkens the hearts of people. What is, what, is, what is Satan no longer able to do in Revelation? It says he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. It doesn't mean he has no activity, but he may no longer deceive the nations any longer. You're taking these different threads. You're saying, how do we bring them together? How do we bring all of this together? How do we understand something like this? Um, It's unfair to understand us. It's fair to understand us as living in that thousand-year period where Satan is bound. And I, I do not think that that is a stretch. I don't think that it's a textual stretch. I don't think it's an exegetical stretch. I think it helps explain exactly what Jesus is talking about in this passage. Satan is bound... He is not destroyed, but he's bound. That doesn't mean there's no evil in the world. That doesn't mean there's no sin in the world. It is abundant. It's all around us. But it does mean this, that Jesus has so divisively beaten Satan that he can now enter Satan's house and plunder as he pleases by the Spirit's power. 
He does the work and redemption of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And no one can stay his hand. And all of this means, I think, that that we need a greater appreciation of the spiritual value of Jesus' work. We need to stop expecting that the defeat of Satan is some instantaneous event or that it's going to be visible in some worldly way. Scripture doesn't indicate that his defeat is like that, right? His defeat doesn't, doesn't mean that utopia descends upon the world. Instead, we need to see the raiding of Satan's house as a long process that begins in the life and ministry of Jesus. Yet this world, which Jesus and Paul both say is Satan's house, this world is a big house with many rooms, and it is not quickly looted. So Jesus, what has Jesus been doing for the last 2,000 years? He goes room to room, working and clearing the building as he goes. Each heart that is changed, each family that is healed, each person who sees and loves the truth is another of Satan's goods that have been looted by Jesus. Church, if we would see this reality, and if we would love it, and if we would meditate upon it, and live in the light of it, I think we would be far less glum and far less defeatist. See, we see a lot of that with many Christians where we sort of have, and we can be guilty of it, right? We can give in to this way of thinking too, where we sort of have an an Eeyore complex and you're filled with self-pity, but but what if we saw ourselves as what we are, as part of Jesus' victorious army, plundering and taking the goods of the strong man? What if we saw that for ourselves instead? I think it would motivate us to move. It's part of the answer. right? It, it would motivate us to share the gospel clearly with people, right? Because what's stopping the world word from spreading throughout this world? Satan? We've already seen Exactly the power Satan has to stop the spread of the word. Do we think unbelief is stopping us? Jesus is bound the strong man. Are we afraid that people's hearts are just too hard? Well, he changes hearts all the time. He changed our hearts, right? That should not be holding us back. Jesus swats down our excuses. And I think Jesus is so kind and so fair, he challenges us. He says, why not now? Why hold back? Why stay silent? Have you forgotten that now is the time to loot the enemy? He's, he's tied up. He's, he's restrained. He can't hurt you. Take the gospel and share it left and right. Let me invite you to literally look around you. And just, if you're in the front of the room, you have a lot to see behind you. If you're in the back of the room, you have a really easy job. You don't have to crane your necks. But... Look around this room and just take in the faces in this place. Because every believer in this room is evidence that the work of Jesus and the binding of the strong man are actually taking place. I think if we believe this more clearly, it would transform our own attitudes. It would transform our own way of thinking about this world around us. It would change the way we think about our role that we play. Because Christ is victorious. The strong man is bound. What are we waiting for? Let's pray. Lord, whatever our place today...
You bring us correctives. You, you push us away from defeatism. You steal from us reasons for discouragement. At the same time, you have a word of deep grace and forgiveness. Lord, every sin will be forgiven. What a scandalous thought. Would you help your discouraged saints to hear of your mercy and treasure it? Would you help those who are interested in your word, they're interested in the teachings of Jesus, but they also are reckoning with the, with the history of their own heart, Lord, and their own deeds. Would you help them to be warned by the words of Jesus? that they would not tolerate hearts that drift away from you because you made us for yourself. Cause these truths to change us and to change those we meet. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.